0: Workers Comp Matters, the podcast dedicated to the laws, the landmark cases, and the people that make up the diverse world of workers' compensation.
1: Here are your hosts, Judd and Alan Pierce. Well, to settle or not to settle, that is the question. And that is a question in workers' compensation claims. Hello, this is Alan Pierce from the Legal Talk Network. Workers' Comp Matters. Delighted to be here today with my son and co-host, Judson Pierce, and we are going to be talking with our guest, uh, Jim Anderson. Jim is a senior
0: founding member of Anderson, Crowley, and Burke, a law firm headquartered in Ridgeland, Mississippi. ACB is a leading firm in Mississippi for the representation of employers and carriers in workers' compensation matters and other areas of insurance defense. Jim is retiring from ACB next month and relocating to Austin, Texas, where he will establish an office location for the firm of Caddy and Gonzalez, a firm specializing in the management of Medicare, secondary, payer issues, lien resolutions, and Section 111 reporting issues and related matters. He's a graduate of University of Southern Mississippi and the Mississippi College School of Law, and he's been listed in Best Lawyers of America since 1995. So Jim, uh, it's with great pleasure that we welcome you to our program today. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I'm very glad to be here and look forward to our conversation. As I have uh, experienced in my some 20-plus years of representing uh, injured workers uh, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the topic of settlement comes up quite a bit. Sometimes it can come up as early as our first intake meeting together. Can we settle this claim eventually? What do you think it's worth? Um, (laughs) And suffice to say, it's, it's, it's it's a hard question to address, at that early hour of a case, never mind. you know, even later in a case and not all cases indeed do settle. Can you just tell our audience
2: briefly, what is a workers' compensation settlement? Well, as you know, in the workers' compensation setting, the employer carrier are allowable for both indemnity benefits or wage replacement benefits, as well as future medical or uh, medical expenses related to the entire claim, what's needed right now, what's needed in the future. And so a settlement would be an effort to close all liability or at least liability for perhaps the indemnity side only or perhaps indemnity and medical as well. What are the
1: typical reasons that the parties, that is the employer carrier, and I guess it would be usually the carrier, although there may be some employer involvement, and the employee, what would be some of the reasons to enter into a discussion about a settlement of the workers' compensation claim, as opposed to letting the claim play out to its inevitable conclusion, whatever that may be?
2: Well, one of the things that we often hear is the best claim is a closed claim. Uh, many, many companies don't want that lingering risk on the file. They would rather have it closed now and take all the loss this year, as an example, rather than just letting it continue to grow Uh, I have claims in my office right now from injuries back as early as 2000, 2001, and invariably they get much worse with time. Uh, I've never seen one uh, just go away when you've had a significant injury uh, such as that. So most of the time, the employer and carrier want to bring it to an end to stop the bleed of the the cash flow related to the settlement. Uh, That's primarily the reason for doing so. Sometimes there's an issue relating to whether or not anything is owed at all. And so you'll reach a compromise of the, of the exposure and attempt to uh, walk away with a closed file for a less sum than it might be worth if you go to trial. I've also seen instances where we have a compensable claim, we're paying indemnity benefits, and we try to settle it, can't come together, But many times, the employer and carrier may increase their willingness to pay more because if you take it to a hearing before the judge, there's a likelihood that even more will be awarded by the judge than you could settle the claim for right now. So there are a variety of reasons which drive the decision to move forward with settlement settlement discussion. How often
0: do settlements occur? Is there a general percentage that you see? Are they more often than not? in
2: a workers' comp case generally? Yes. In my experience, more often than not, they do settle at the end of the day. Even if one is tried and goes through several levels of appeal, ultimately the parties will reach the point where the best conclusion is still a closed file. So it could settle at any point during the litigation process or the appeal process or before any litigation at all. But I would say in my experience, most of the cases end up in a settlement. And let me
1: remind our audience, and I think we we do this uh, on almost every edition of Workers' Comp Matters, we are reaching uh, all 50 states, presumably, and every state is different. Uh, some states call them lump sum settlements. Some call them compromise and release. Uh, I think in Mississippi, Jim, you say there are nine I settlements. That must be the section of your statute that uh, dictates uh, the procedures for settlement. And the other thing I would like to point out is that I think this is pretty much universal. Nobody is ever forced to settle the case. It takes, as you say, two to tango. There has to be a willing buyer and a willing seller, because in the end, this is a financial transaction. The injured worker is selling their rights for future workers' comp benefits, for whatever they may be, for a sum of money. And as a result, the employee cannot force the insurer to settle, nor can the insurer force the employee to settle. Is that Pretty much, is that a fair summary of
2: at least the general principles of a settlement in workers' comp? Absolutely. I would add one caveat to that. In my experience, uh, settlements are not rubber-stamped. The parties can agree all day long, but uh, the regulatory authority may not approve the settlement. And we see that happen quite often.
1: And that's an excellent point because uh, you're right. Most of the industrial accident boards or commissions in their law that dictates uh, the procedures relative to settling a case require that there be a settlement hearing before whatever the hearing officer is called, the judge, the referee, the hearing officer, uh, so that the settlement is approved. And in Massachusetts, the standard is as being in the employee's best interests not the insurer's best
2: interest or the employer's best interest. Do you have a similar framework in your uh, practice? We do. It, our law do, is based on a settlement being in the best interest of the injured worker. But what that means is a case-by-case uh, variance. It may depend on the initial the, the circumstances of the case. At this
0: point, why don't we take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with James Anderson. when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thisspanishgroup.org. And we're back with our guest, James Anderson of Mississippi. Jim, how are settlement values determined and how uh, is the process uh, instigated? Uh, Demand, uh, counteroffer, that
2: sort of thing. Well, it varies from case to case. I have had instances where My client says, I want to get this claim settled. What is it worth? And I will prepare an analysis uh, looking at the the best case scenario, the worst case scenario, and what I think is a target range that we should be thinking of in trying to get a case settled. Sometimes the negotiations uh, begin with a demand from opposing counsel. Sometimes they go to the trouble of explaining where they're coming from and the number that they're using. Sometimes they just say, we want X dollars. Those are generally pretty useless in terms of trying to get a case resolved. But many times I will prefer to make the opening offer. If I've evaluated my case properly and I know my range, I would rather make an offer that I can explain and set the, the tone for the whole conversation about settlement then. We think it's worth X and this is Y. And you begin to go from there and sometimes they'll come back and say, well, perhaps if you could get it up to the next level, Y dollars, whatever they might be, then we could get it done. And then sometimes we just have, um, candidly, we have some people who just want money and the demand doesn't make any sense at all. And we just have to work through those and (laughs) try to get them to see uh, that is just not a case where all the money in the world can be paid. That's what workers compensation is. It's not like a tort case, of course.
1: Of course, timing is also important. As, as you know, cases could be settled at any time. From our perspective, we generally do not even entertain the thought of settlement except in unusual circumstances until our client is somewhat close to or at a medical end result. So we we and the carrier have a at least a a frame of reference as to the permanent limitations that might or might not impact future indemnity or future medical payments. So in terms of timing, is it more uh, geared toward the recovery process as opposed to any other sort of marker as a timeframe to start to think about settlement?
2: Well, it really is, in most cases, dependent upon the uh, person reaching maximum medical recovery, maximum medical improvement. Our commission is going to be finding that, looking for that in the file when we send the settlement in, and if we have a situation where we do not have MMI for one reason or another, we're going to have to try to explain that to the commission on why we're trying to settle now when we are not at a point where settlement is usually considered. So it will depend on the circumstances. I have a case right now where there's very much a challenge to whether or not the accident occurred. A report of the alleged injury came in more than six months after the alleged injury. No witnesses were there. The man is uh, already Medicare eligible. He was working a part-time job. And we began discussing a settlement uh, in such a way where we would stay below the workload thresholds of the CMS to do it on a denied and disputed basis without any admission of liability. We don't have MMI, but at the same time, we don't have uh, any proof that he really had a work-related injury. So sometimes you have those cases where you are just trying to get it resolved as quickly as you can for for the best terms that you can.
0: Is it advisable, and we have listeners who are not only attorneys, but they're potential claimants, or they have already uh, been in the workers' comp process themselves, is it always advisable to have counsel with you if you're a claimant in terms of negotiating a settlement?
2: You know, I really do think that most of the time it makes more sense for the person to have an attorney. Those of us on the defense side of the case— are not able to give the injured worker any advice other than the advice that they have a right to have an attorney of their own. We can't tell them that this is a good settlement, a bad settlement, or indifferent settlement. Uh, That just crosses the line ethically there. So it just makes more sense for there to be attorneys on both sides so that everyone can understand the details in the process. And that's particularly significant, I think, when we're dealing with the issues surrounding uh, Medicare and their interest in the settlement as well. And we're going
1: to get into that in the latter part of the uh, our conversation today. I've got two uh, somewhat related questions before we take a break. The first question is, and I get this a lot from uh, my clients, first of all, they hear from their network of contacts, associates, family members, what somebody else settled their case for. And I have to tell them that every case is evaluated differently. Somebody could have an extremely painful Permanent injury, they may be getting $300 a week in workers' comp benefits, like your claimant you just described who's working uh, under the SSDI threshold. Or you may have somebody else who might be getting $1,000 a week, but have, much have a less uh a difficult injury to manage. It's hard to explain why the first person's case might be worth less than the second person's case. It's a function of what they're getting and what they might get. Is that a fair statement?
2: Absolutely, it is. Uh, that's that's the way it is in uh, nearly every case that we have. Someone has given some legal advice, uh, who's not an attorney, uh, a stepmother-in-law, if you will, about uh, uh, what the case might really be worth, and there'd be no basis for it at all other than cousin so-and-so got more money than that. So every case is unique. And there is no
1: pain and suffering. I can't tell you how many times in my career I've explained to my clients that the value of the settlement is a function of what the insurance company might have to pay going forward in weekly benefits and or if medicals close, perhaps cover the contingency of further medical costs. No matter what the pain and suffering is, which in a tort case, a civil case, is oftentimes the most expensive part of the case. That's not a factor here. The second part of my question is that we talk in terms of lump sum settlements which means that the person getting $900 a week and they settle their case for four years of future benefits, so $50,000 a year for four years is, you know, maybe a $200,000 plus or minus settlement, they would get a check less the council fees, one check. We have now seen with the rise of interest rates, uh, more and more of our clients being asked to consider a structured settlement. So, could you give us and our listeners an idea of what a structured settlement is as compared to a
2: plain old lump sum settlement? Absolutely, the insurance company would purchase an annuity to pay out a certain amount of money per month or per year or per week, however it was structured, so that the injured worker doesn't get all the money at one time. He would have a he or she would have a guaranteed income over a period of time that is just based on uh, the amount of money involved in the uh, the amount of money that needs to be paid on a uh, periodic basis. Most of the time, those are set up so that the injured worker is not able to go in and cash that annuity out at a later time. I know you've seen TV ads where some people say that they can do that. These are usually set up so that that's not a possibility at all. And it can be done for indemnity benefits, or it can be done for medical, or it can be done for both. It depends on the circumstances of the case. In Mississippi, where the benefit levels are lower than they are in other states, it's rare to see a settlement of indemnity on a structure. Uh, Most of our structures come from cases where we are trying to close future medical. But there could be some instances where a, a, a structured settlement could be utilized or purchase of annuity could be utilized in the payment of future indemnity benefits as well.
1: And one of, one of the, uh, positives regarding a structured settlement, and you could also have a blend. You could, have, in fact, I find that in most of the cases that we do, do negotiate a structured settlement, our client will get some upfront money. Let's say $75,000, $100,000, whatever. And they would then get the structure and the structure could pay them uh, $2,500 a month for 10 years guaranteed or something like that. There's a benefit to that in the sense that some of our clients are not terribly sophisticated financially. Some of them have never had a bulk sum of money in their life and might have difficulty managing that or dissipating it. So that the portion that is structured gives them some protection, it gives them some financial uh, security. And also the interest that is accumulated under the annuity, if it's purchased by the workers' comp insurer, goes to the claimant tax-free as opposed to the claimant taking a $200,000 settlement and purchasing some type of vehicle uh, of an investment and then have to pay taxes on that income. So um, I think what we'll do now is take a break. And when we come back, uh, we'll talk a little bit more of settlements and also what we touched on earlier, the process in getting Medicare involved when the Settling party is either a Medicare recipient, a Social Security disability Medicare recipient, or might be one within 36 months. So we'll be right back after a brief break. Merritt's case is the number one law practice
0: management solution tailor-made for workers' compensation firms. Streamline your practice with Merritt's case's easy-to-use, all-in-one platform. You're empowered to breeze through case and document management, workers' compensation forms, e-filing, calendaring, and invoicing. Learn how Maris Case can increase your firm's efficiency today. Visit MarisCase.com. That's M-E-R-U-S-C-A-S-E E.com.
1: Hey, Gee, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Gee, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin
0: at Law, And we're back uh, with Jim Anderson. Jim, what happens when the settling party, the claimant, uh, is already on Social Security disability or is likely to become a Medicare recipient within um,
2: 30 months into the future? Well, that's when we have to consider Medicare's interests. If they are already on uh, Social Security retirement, The CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, has established some workload thresholds uh, that say that they expect us to send in a requested approval of the settlement amount that's intended for medical that Medicare might pay for in the future. That requires a sophisticated calculation to determine how much that might be, and we send it in and we get approval, and then we're able to settle that part of the claim. Now, they also have another workload threshold. You mentioned uh, the possibility of being a Medicare recipient within the next 30 months. If your settlement amount is more than $250,000 and you're not a current Medicare recipient, but you're expected to be one within the next 30 months, then we also do that Medicare set-aside arrangement calculation and send it into the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to seek approval of the settlement. Uh, this has been around. It's actually been in the law since about 1982, but really only discovered in about 2001. And since then, it's a, it's an industry that has cropped up trying to deal with uh, Medicare's future interests. Uh, some of these calculations are, are very sophisticatedly done. Sometimes it's simply someone who writes down everything that might possibly happen and puts a price on it and uh, Uh, Those are the ones that I think are most difficult to deal with because it's not a legitimate effort of determining what Medicare might really be responsible for in the future. So we go through that process of trying to figure it out. Is a person, uh, do we have to have a Medicare set-aside arrangement depending on the workload thresholds that have been established? And if we do, then we go through that process to try to get that determined. Now, you've got some situations, though, where let's say you've got a challenge to compensability on the claim and it's not been accepted, you may have a situation where you attempt to get a zero allocation from Medicare. And so there's a process of going through to get that zero allocation approved by the CMS. And sometimes it just is a matter of negotiation uh, with them on and explaining to them why it's a case that uh, does not uh, uh, involve the payment of anything that might represent Medicare's future money or their medical expenses. And as I understand it, once a
1: Medicare set-aside amount is determined and approved by CMS, the Center for Medicaid, Medicare Services, that money is literally set aside and paid by the insurer toward medical bills that may or may not be incurred, but once that threshold, once that amount is met, then Medicare will take over and make payments going forward. So if somebody has ongoing medical needs, let's say might need a second knee replacement after a first work-related knee replacement, maybe the first prosthesis wears out, the set-aside agreement would predict what that cost might be. And if that cost is exceeded that, then Medicare picks up that excesses. That is how I understand it works, correct?
2: Correct. That's the way I understand it as well. Most of the time, this money is supposed to be put in a separate account, an interest-bearing account that the injured worker would maintain and can only spend that money on medical expenses for which Medicare might otherwise be liable. The challenge that that injured worker has, though, Alan, is that they're supposed to be paying those medical bills at fee schedule rates. And... Not many injured workers have the sophistication to find out what the fee schedule rates are so they know what to pay their doctor when they send a bill to them. Uh, There are also some challenges regarding the reporting that goes back to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services on how they spent their money. If they haven't spent it properly and can't document it, Medicare may throw up their hands and say, well, we're not paying for any more medical treatment until you prove how you spent the money you already had. So a self-administered Medicare set-aside arrangement can be very difficult for an injured worker.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because, as you mentioned, a cottage industry has grown over the last 20 years as uh, the federal government and Medicare have been looking at the workers' comp system as it relates to Medicare and the, the shifting of medical costs from workers' comp to Medicare. So there are... Now, resources available, and I think John Caddy, whom you will be uh, working for uh, soon, was one of the leaders in the field of of establishing a process and and marketing this process where for a relatively modest fee, you guys do the work and get the Medicare set-aside approved. Because God knows I tried it once and it is extraordinarily complicated to do, not something I would want to do day in and day out. And secondly, there are now some firms that, again, for a very modest price, will administer those benefits. So our relatively unsophisticated or even our sophisticated clients, and certainly our office, we don't want to be involved in looking at fee schedules and, and making payments. So give us an idea of Who who usually bears the costs for these? Uh, I've been successful in having the insurers pay for the uh, people that put together the Medicare proposals.
2: Well, that's true. And most of the time, it is the insurer or the large employer, if they're self-insured, who bears the burden of calculating what this MSA amount ought to be and sending it into the CMS for approval. One of the things that I have often worried about, though, is that the... um, the injured worker's attorney is representing that injured worker to make sure that his best interests are protected. And I think there are times when the injured worker should be the one hiring a professional to determine the amount of the, of the MSA that's to be submitted to make sure that it is adequate for covering the injured worker's needs. Sometimes we do get some proposals back for MSAs that simply don't make sense. If you get one of those where your proposal doesn't make sense, I would recommend that you consider get a second, getting a second opinion on the MSA amount. Uh, we have had a lot of experience where the MSA proposal is sent in and rejected by CMS, and the number that they come back with is simply uh, maybe three times what was submitted. Well, is that the right amount? Is that really what should be set aside? And taking a more aggressive role in dealing with what CMS would actually require, perhaps uh, having a meeting with them to explain why that much is not required or whatever, uh, may be something that's appropriate for your clients uh, to be adequately protected there.
1: One question on that that just uh, came to mind. Lawyers, as most of you know, are allowed to charge a fee to be deducted from the amount of the lump sum settlement. The percentage can be negotiated with the client, uh, but it cannot exceed a, a certain amount. Most states, it's around 20%, or Massachusetts, it could either be 15 or 20% or something in between or lower. What about the attorney's fees for the amount that is set aside? Is there provisions for attorneys to get paid, or is that something that will just that set aside amount is gross and not uh, subject to a counsel
2: fee. Uh, under CMS regulations, you cannot the the injured worker's attorney cannot take a fee out of the MSA amount. It has to be spent only for future medical expenses for which Medicare might be liable. What I have seen happen in some cases is your negotiated settlement. Is uh, broken down into three different pieces. You've got an amount that represents indemnity benefits, and you've got an amount that represents the future medical expenses for which Medicare might be liable. There may also be a category for future medical expenses for which Medicare is not liable, such as travel expense to and from medical treatment. And sometimes they're negotiated so that the attorney's fee is just another bucket to be considered. You've got your indemnity, you've got your medical, uh, Medicare part and your non-Medicare part, and then you have a a fourth bucket that's filled up that represents the attorney's fee. Uh, There's no magic to this. It's simply how it gets negotiated, and it depends on the circumstances of the case. Uh, If the indemnity value is just really low for whatever reason, and all the money is in the future MSA that you can't take a fee out of, That would be the best way to try to approach it. Just set it up for a separate uh, bucket to be filled up, representing a fee. What would you say is the most common question we get once we've negotiated
1: a settlement for a client? When do I get my money? Is it taxable?
0: Oh, 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 do I have to pay tax? Yeah, of course,
1: course. Jim.
0: Is it taxable, Jim? I don't think it is. (laughs) I do not
1: think that it is either. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's not. And if, if the weekly benefits aren't taxable, the uh, lump sum settlement benefits are not taxable. But uh, I, I, I frequently have to, we do, Judd and I both have to tell our clients, sometimes we just take it for granted, they know it. But their first question is, do I pay taxes on this? Do I get a 1099? What's going to happen? And uh, the answer is generally no. I just want to uh, follow up with some
0: key takeaways that I've... Uh taken from this uh, 30 Minutes with you, Jim. It's been so, so interesting. And I hope our audience uh, is left with these takeaways that, look, settlements often happen in workers' comp cases, but not always. Settlements really should be left up to professionals, meaning licensed bar counsel, because they can negotiate for the best interests of both their clients. And it's a complicated matter, because sometimes when you're dealing with states that often deal with uh, social security issues and CMS and MSAs. Massachusetts isn't necessarily one of those because our medicals remain open. It really requires some expertise that may even go beyond the law firm in hiring a third party to help draft up what is known as an MSA uh, for someone's future medical needs. So those are my key takeaways from today. Uh, Do you want to add
2: anything onto those, Jim? I do. Um, the MSA, Medicare's future interests is only one component that we have to deal with. Also sitting out there are the conditional payments that have been made on medical expenses, and that just refers to medical bills that Medicare has paid that should have been paid for by the workers' compensation insurer. Well, they have a right to come back and collect those from the responsible party. And the uh, companies these days are dealing a lot with the uh, liens that are coming back on conditional payments. What if you have that situation where you've got a claim that you compromised in terms of the extent of the exposure and you say, that we, we don't admit any liability at all. We're just settling it for $25,000 to shut it down and make the litigation go away. And therefore, since it's below the workload threshold, we don't have to worry about uh, CMS at all. But then CMS, a different, uh, a different uh, part of CMS, through a different contractor, comes in and says, hey, wait a minute, uh, we've already paid some medical expenses on this. And you say, but wait a minute, it's a denied claim. They say, well, it may have been denied claim, but you settled the claim, and therefore you need to be paying these payments that we've already made for Medicare, uh, by Medicare, for services rendered after this injury date occurred. So those liens are one of those things that have to be worked out these days. You've also got a number of other liens that are showing up out there. Medicaid may have a lien as well for what they may have paid related to the injury. Under the military, you've got uh, Veterans Administration hospitals out there, and payments are being processed by them. They may have a lien to be reimbursed, and that includes not only the, uh, the TRICARE, what they call the CHAMP VA, if it involves an, an Indian nation, you may have a, a lien from the Indian Health Services for what they have paid. Uh, what about those states with uh, uh, are permitting uh, opt-out, and, and they have an ERISA plan that's set up, and that's paid some of the expenses related to the claim. I can see liens coming back from them as well. So it's a very complicated field. It's a minefield out there to have to uh, walk through very carefully to make sure you do everything to shut down the whole claim. And and Social Security won't always notice you in advance to inform you that there's conditional payments that might be due, correct? Exactly right. They reserve the right to tell you after the settlement what their lien actually ended up being. You're
1: absolutely right. Well, Jim, I want to thank you for being our guest today. We could probably talk another half hour, an hour on this topic because there are so many issues. You've really given us a good uh, showing of how complicated, if not complex, this process can be. We began the show with the Bard, um, To Settle or Not to Settle. I would say in wrapping up that uh, if we follow your advice and approach this knowing all of the minefield and traps that are out there all's well that should end well Uh, so with that (laughs) i want to thank you for being a guest on workers calm matters to those of you that are listening uh, i hope you enjoyed the show i hope you learned something and please come back to our next edition and in the interim go out and make it a day that matters thank you again bye-bye